Hi, I'm Chance. And I'm Sarah Catherine. And this is Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. We run a wildlife education nonprofit focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day around the country. We talk to professionals in the world of conservation science and wildlife management and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. Join us each week to discover just how these dedicated people are working to protect our planet. Today, we're talking with Dr. Bob Podolsky. He's the director of the Grice Marine Lab here at College of Charleston. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah, we're so happy to be here and so glad that you met us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how exactly did you become the director at the Marine Lab here? Well, it's a longer story than you probably want to hear, but uh, <laughs> um, I was a graduate student at the University of Washington. I went there to work with folks on the issue of how organisms change as they grow in size and during development. And I went to University of Washington's marine laboratory to take a course in invertebrate biology because I thought that would be good to round out my studies and part of my comprehensive exams. And I fell in love with marine biology while I was there. Uh, Friday Harbor Laboratories is the University of Washington's marine laboratory. Spent another spring there doing a course starting on the work that became my dissertation. I didn't expect to do marine biology, but that's what I got hooked on. I had a postdoc in California, took a job later on at the University of North Carolina, and my wife and I went looking for jobs, and this was a perfect place for us in terms of the level at which we could do research and teaching, and I had my marine interests. The Grice Marine Laboratory is only 15 minutes away from our downtown campus, so we jumped on it and both have positions here where we teach and do research. That's awesome. I love that it's so important to you and your wife that not only are you researching, but you're teaching. There's this importance of both creating new information and, and discovering new answers, but also making sure that that gets passed on to the next generation of scientists. And that's really important. You talk about kind of having just fallen in love with marine biology without really expecting to. Was there a moment when you were at that lab that you can sort of pinpoint as, wow, this is really cool. Yeah, I started working on larvae. I mean, my career is focused on early life history stages of marine invertebrates, which are as diverse as the adult stages. They're as different from the adult stages as adult stages are from one another. Mm -hmm. The larval stages are all the stages that lead up to a dramatic metamorphosis in the development of the animal various kinds of animals, echinoderms and mollusks, annelid worms, they almost all have a metamorphosis in the life cycle where the larval stage is dramatically different and turns into an adult when it has acquired enough resource to enter the juvenile phase of the life cycle. So, I got really interested in the diversity of forms, diversity of how these things work. They all do the same basic thing. They all turn a small egg into a large juvenile mm -hmm. by feeding in the plankton. Almost all the life histories of marine invertebrates do that. So I got really interested in that aspect of it. And I took a course in larval ecology at the University of Washington and started on the project that became my dissertation work, which was focused on the fact that these organisms are really tiny. They live at very small scales. And at small scales, there are non-intuitive physical properties of their interaction with the water that they're in. Like what? 
Well, it turns out that at really small scales, the viscosity of the water is really important in governing how they interact with the water and how they interact with things like food particles that are suspended in the water. So we live at a scale at which viscosity doesn't play much of a role in terms of how we interact with the fluid that's around us. But for a larval form or for a sperm, you know, for a gamete, which is another stage that I work on, they're so small that the fluid that they're in has a big role on how the body moves and how other kinds of particles move past them. Would you mind giving me just a brief definition of what exactly is viscosity? Viscosity. So viscosity is a property that everybody knows because you know that honey is more viscous than water. That is, it's, it's thicker. It's harder to pour. What's going on at a molecular level is that the molecules are interacting with each other more such that molecules have to slide past one another and the forces that prevent their sliding past one another are greater for honey than for water. As you chill down fluids, uh, liquids I should say, they tend to get more viscous. And so for an organism like a larva moving through a fluid or for the cilium, the little hair that they use to move around in the fluid, for that cilium to interact with the fluid that they're in, the thickness of the water affects the way that that cilium moves and the way the larva moves to an extent that we can't appreciate given the scale at which we live. It's, so, it's the difference between trying to swim through a swimming pool of water and a swimming pool of molasses. Molasses. That is often the uh, analogy that's made for if you could try to picture it, it would be like dunking you into a pool of molasses and asking you to swim. And what happens is that the processes that let you swim through molasses are quite different. In water, you accelerate the fluid behind you and therefore accelerate your body forward. At a scale where you'd be interacting with a fluid like molasses, you wouldn't accelerate the molasses behind you. What you do is literally crawl through the molasses using the resistance of the fluid. Oh. So there's a different set of physical properties. And I got very interested in that question, and the question that became my dissertation work had to do with the fact that if you change the temperature of a fluid, you change not only the internal physiology of the animal that governs the rate at which biochemical reactions drive the ability to create motion, you're also changing the physical properties of the fluid they're interacting with to generate that motion. And the goal of my dissertation work was to try to factor out what contribution was made by the physiological changes and what contribution was made by the mechanical changes. Okay. And I looked at that in larvae and in sperm that were swimming toward eggs, um, just to get a general sense of how much of a contribution this unappreciated aspect of temperature change was toward how effectively things worked at small scales. So basically, you were looking at when you chill down a liquid the organisms in that liquid go slower. And is it because they're cold or is it because it's harder to move through that liquid? Right. There are those two pathways by which temperature could affect the activity in an organism. Trying to suss out which yeah. is actually doing what. That yeah. makes sense. And the general finding was that about half of the effect of chilling down a small organism was due to the mechanical effects of interacting with the fluid as opposed to the physiological effects of temperature. That's how I got hooked. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. a, a long answer to your question of how I got really interested. That was the moment really at which it happened for me. And then I stayed working with larvae. I was working with Richard Strathman at the University of Washington, who has taught many people about larvae and got many of them hooked mm -hmm. on larvae. And then got into, you know, varied forms of larvae. And um, 
I did a project in the Great Barrier Reef looking at brittle stars. Uh, we had access to a group of brittle stars that had a lot of variation in egg size. Mm -hmm. Got interested in how much the effects of egg size changed the form of the larva and its feeding mode and its life history uh, evolution. And now you're actually still conducting research on larvae today, yes. correct? Yes, and we're looking, tend to look more at environmental effects on larvae and their efficiency in collecting food and in growing a skeleton and so forth. So we're looking at different kinds of environmental insults and how they affect the development of larvae. Are there a particular set of insults or, I guess, suboptimal conditions that you're interested in researching? Is there anything that's kind of more important than others that you're focusing on? Some of the main ones that people tend to look at because they affect the distribution of organisms are things like temperature variation. What affects uh, organisms at the ends of their ranges? What limits the ability of an organism to expand beyond its range? Temperature is a variable that is known to have profound effects on physiology, as I just mentioned, for small organisms, has effects on the mechanics with which it interacts with the fluid that it's in. So we've looked at the effects of temperature on populations that are separated latitudinally, that's found at different latitudes that normally experience different temperatures. More lately, we've gotten into looking at the effects of ocean acidification. So the fact that CO2 in the atmosphere is being absorbed by the oceans. About 30 to 40% of what has been pumped into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution has been taken up by the oceans. When CO2 is dissolved in water, it forms carbonic acid, which lowers the pH of the water that the organisms are in. And this turns out to have important consequences in a couple of different ways, but the main way that's been studied is that it uh, reduces the ability to produce calcium carbonate skeletons, to sequester calcium carbonate from seawater to make hard parts. And that affects everything from corals, which build an external skeleton, to mollusks, which build shells, to uh, echinoderm larvae, which is what I mostly work on, to build internal skeletons, which are also made of a form of calcium carbonate. Now, how are you studying this exactly? Are you going to different sites and studying this? Are you bringing things back to the lab and running tests? Mostly, we work in the laboratory. And the reason is we can have complete control over the conditions under which they're developing. So I can create conditions in the laboratory where I'm mimicking future atmospheric conditions, letting the seawater that the organisms are sitting in equilibrate with that atmosphere and drive the pH of the water that they're sitting in to lower levels to mimic what we expect to happen under future conditions. So in the laboratory, we have complete control over the environmental conditions that they're experiencing and are able to isolate the effects of those variables in a way that wouldn't be possible in the field. We're talking about very tiny larvae on the order of 100 to 200 micrometers. So very, very small. Tenth of a millimeter <laughs> yeah. in size. And we can grow lots of them in the laboratory, we can create the conditions that we want, and we can mimic what's going on in the field and what's going on in the future. We can mimic the CO2 conditions that are expected 100 years into the future and look at how the organisms respond to those conditions. Wow. So there's a, a kind of a couple of different types of organisms that fall under a kind of dermata. We've got sea urchins, sand dollars, sea cucumbers. What am I missing? Uh, sea stars, sea stars. Uh, brittle stars, and crinoids. crinoids. So there are the five. Okay. Yeah. 
Do you work with all of those or are you looking at a specific subgroup of those? We have tended to focus on the echinoids, which is one class. The echinoids includes things like sea urchins and sand dollars. One reason is there's been a lot of research done on them. They are easy to work with in the laboratory because they undergo meiosis, that is, they produce gametes inside the body, and they complete that process and then sit there with their gametes ready to go. So all you have to do is induce them to release them in order to work with the gametes, fertilize them in the laboratory, and grow larvae from there. The other groups are a little more intractable in the sense that you have to induce them to complete meiosis before they release their gametes, but they're, they've been less tractable to work with in terms of their uh, larval biology. And they don't all have internal skeletons. So, That's what I was about to ask. Yeah. It seems like a sea cucumber doesn't have a whole lot to worry about making as much calcium carbonate skeleton. Right. So sea cucumbers and sea stars are two groups that don't have an internal skeleton, which is not to say that low pH wouldn't affect their development. So I want to make that point clear. Most of the effort has gone into understanding how changes in pH in the ocean affect the production of hard materials, calcium carbonate materials. There are other aspects of low pH that affect the physiology of organisms. We're also trying to work on some of those. And one important area is that gametes, again, getting back to sperm, sperm are affected by pH in something like a sea urchin. And there's a good reason for that, which is that low pH is a natural suppressant of sperm activity in the testes of these animals. So a little bit of metabolism generates CO2 drives down the pH inside the testes, and the sperm are quiescent. They don't move, and they don't use up their energy. It's a natural mechanism by which they suppress activity. Then when they're released into seawater, of course, they're activated, become, you know, normally functioning. They undergo physiology. They swim. They find eggs, and they fertilize them. If you release sperm into a lower pH seawater, you are potentially putting them under conditions that would normally suppress their activity, and that's what we found. So they're, it basically interrupts their ability to complete the fertilization process out in seawater. We've found that they are suppressed in their motility. They fertilize the eggs that they would reach at slower rates. So it's a very different kind of effect of low pH on the capacity for the early life history stages of something like a sea urchin to survive. And this is going to affect many groups of organisms because I suspect that many of them are suppressed in the same way by the same kind of physiological mechanism. So it's a very different kind of effect of low pH. And what we're trying to do, this is taking a little more effort, we're trying to understand whether there is a genetic correlation between the ability of individuals to resist low pH at the gamete stage and the ability of the same individuals to resist low pH at the larval stage. Okay. Very different mechanisms. One is a suppression of activity. One is a suppression of skeletal growth. We're trying to see whether there's, first of all, genetic variation for the ability to resist low pH, but also whether there's genetic correlation between stages in the ability to resist low pH. And have you found anything with that yet? Well, what we found is that there tends to be very low genetic variation in the populations that we've looked at. So we're doing studies comparing populations that are local to Charleston, so you might call them southern populations of the sea urchin Arbatia punctulata. We've also had shipped to us from the north, from uh, Woods Hole, Massachusetts, populations of the same animal, which have been living under obviously colder temperatures and different pH conditions. We're looking in both populations, and we're finding in general 
is there's relatively low genetic variation for the ability to respond to pH conditions. And when you have a situation of low genetic variability, you have a situation where it's going to be hard for those populations to respond to future changes in pH. Right. Because when a population has a lot of variability in their genes, if their environmental conditions change and that becomes a desirable trait, the population as a whole is going to be able to survive or at least be more robust than if they didn't have as much variation. So if they're really highly adapted to their exact suit of environmental conditions and they carry no other variability in their genes to respond to change, then if that environment changes, as we're seeing happening very rapidly in our lifetime, that population is not going to do very well once that change kind of sets in. Right. And if, if in your population you have some individuals that show good resistance to low pH and others that show poorer resistance, you can have natural selection for the individuals that show good resistance and breeding between them will eventually lead to offspring that will show good resistance. And that's how a population evolves in response to an environmental change. And this is such, such a rapid change that we're seeing. We've seen a change of about 0.1 or 0.2 pH units since the Industrial Revolution. But because pH is on a log scale, that's actually a very big change. We've seen changes of up to 30% in the wow. amount of hydrogen ions in the water and in, in the level of pH change. Considering the volume of the ocean, to have that large of a percentage increase over just what the Industrial Revolution was just a couple hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. That is a massively rapid change across a huge scale. And of course, we're talking about surface water. So most of the CO2 is being taken right. in at the surface. But then what you also have is, you know, there's ocean circulation that brings up cold, acidified water from depth in what are called upwelling events. And so there are some populations that deal not only with CO2 change from the atmosphere, but also CO2 variation that's induced by these upwelling events bringing up cold, acidified seawater. So as you're researching this, are you hoping just to understand it? Or is there the thought that maybe if we understand this, we can do something to change it or fix it? Ah. This is a tough question. How do you fix environmental problems on a scale that are so massive and are expected to get worse? You know, at Grice Marine Lab, most of us do fairly basic science. And basic science has been the model for science in the United States for a long time. We put money into understanding how things work. And that kind of information lends itself to application later on down the road. I'm not specifically working on application of the information that we're generating, but what we're hoping is that a better understanding of levels of genetic variation in populations and of the degree to which different life history stages are vulnerable to acidification can lend itself to management decisions about how large a population you need to maintain, to maintain genetic variation, what kind of areas are most vulnerable to acidification. The Atlantic coast is not equally vulnerable. It's been a big sink for CO2 from the atmosphere to be absorbed into the ocean basin. That is, if you look at a world map, the Atlantic has taken up more CO2 than other bodies of water. And knowing that puts you in a position where you understand that certain populations may be more vulnerable than others, and you may shift your conservation efforts, for example, to those populations. Focus on one spot over another. Yeah. But mostly what we're doing is the basic science of understanding how things work, how things respond to environmental change so that those who are going to manage these populations in the future have access to that kind of information. 
And if we were to zoom out a little bit from the very tiny scale of working with echinoderm larvae out to kind of a broader scale, what is the implication? So if we have a greatly acidified ocean in the next 100 years, and we're finding that echinoderms are not able to respond to that change, and we see a drastic drop off in their population, what are some of the broader effects we might see from a situation like that? Mm -hmm. Echinoderm larvae are obviously important to echinoderm adults and populations because they recruit into those populations and and sustain them. But of course, larvae also form the base of food webs that support higher trophic levels, higher levels of feeding. And so if we have the decline of populations that feed higher levels in food chains, then we have the potential for collapse of these food webs, many of which support the resources that we depend on. So, of course, human populations are threatened, even though echinoderms seem inconsequential to human populations. Their larval forms are parts of food webs that support the kinds of fisheries that humans depend on for their food. There are fisheries in this part of the world, things like the shrimp fishery, that generate enormous amounts of money, generate a large part of the protein for populations in this area. So the implications would be that there would be a disruption of the resources that support not only natural populations, but also human populations. So it's not just that the sea urchins themselves are going to have a hard time recruiting new adults. It's that because they're having difficulty creating gametes and therefore larvae, a lot of other organisms lose a major food source. It would be like if all of the supermarkets in the area shut down and the fish are no longer able to find the food that they relied upon. And so the next level collapses, and then the bigger fish that were relying on that level can't find their food. And so that makes its way all the way up to the top of the food chain, and that's kind of where we're sitting. And if we don't have food for us, that's not a good thing. Right, right. And people have to recognize this, that it's not just stuff out in the ocean that you shouldn't care about, but rather human populations that are going to be impacted by changes in the way that these ecological communities work. Absolutely. Now, as you've been doing this research or even in this field in general, have you run across a point where you've really had difficulty with something or you've run into a large challenge or maybe even a point where you're like, man, this is fantastic. This is going so well, better than I can imagine. (laughs) Either end of that. Less of the latter (laughs) because there are always challenges. Yeah. There are challenges to doing this kind of research, especially at the scale at which the Grice Marine Lab can handle this kind of work. So to control temperature seems like an easy thing. You just, you know, use a heater, use a cooler and change your temperatures in your tanks. But to generate the level of replication you need to say we've applied this temperature independently to a number of different subjects, you need that kind of replication to get good results, results you can rely on. For generating different atmospheres of CO2 and being able to generate replication is a challenging thing. I choose not to work on adults in part because I simply can't maintain the kind of infrastructure that you need to work at that scale on large adult organisms. What I can do is work on small things right, in laboratories. So I kind of try to carve out that niche of how to work in the world of ocean acidification, which is this gigantic world, and there are major universities working on the problem that have big facilities in which they can dial in the CO2 levels that they want in big apparatus and keep large adult animals. So the challenge for me has been finding a niche in which I can operate at a facility like this at a a scale that the College of Charleston operates and still do meaningful research. And I found that the ability to work on larval stages – 
where I can maintain microcosms of situations they live in out in the wild, have it be realistic for the animal to live in that. I mean, they're surrounded by water, so what do they know? But I can keep small enough containers that I can use uh, apparatus I have in my laboratory to maintain the gas concentrations that I'm interested in. So I, I feel like in doing ocean acidification work, I'm limited in what I can do. But because it I maps onto my scientific world and working on larvae and gametes, that it's a really nice match for me. And we can work at the scale that lets me do the work. Absolutely. Now, I kind of want to spotlight Grice Marine Lab for a yeah. second here. If anyone wanted to support Grice or maybe get involved, I don't know if you guys do any like volunteer days or beach cleanups, but is there somewhere they could go to find information on that or how could they help you guys out or get involved? Sure. We have um, two main ways that we interact with the public. One is that we have a very large outreach program called CORAL. CORAL is a program that was generated by our marine operations manager, Pete Meyer. And he basically got together some scraps of material and put together a program where he could travel to schools and now has a touch tank and a microscope set up where he can show local school kids who live you know, within reach of the ocean but may not know anything about marine organisms. He reaches uh, thousands on the order of about 4,000 students a wow. year locally with these programs. That's great. So he's always wants volunteers to help him with that because, sure. you know, who doesn't like working with kids? So that's the main way that Grice interacts. We also have through our graduate program in marine biology, the graduate students get involved in outreach to the community. They do local education nights down at Folly Beach. They've educated the public about ocean issues, conservation issues. We participate in the open house that's done every year or every other year here. It's run by the DNR at Fort Johnson, but we participate in that. So we interact with the public there and teach them about what we do at the Marine Lab. So how can people get involved? They can take part in some of the activities that the graduate students organize in terms of uh, beach cleanups. We do that once a year. They can get involved in the school activities with the coral program. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us about kind of your life's work looking at larvae. And uh, we really appreciate you being on the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for visiting us and for talking to all of our scientists. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We would love to hear from you. If you want to reach out to us, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. If you're a teacher and you'd like to use this episode in your classroom, get in touch with us. We'll provide you with state and national standard tie-ins and additional materials to help you guide a class discussion. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week. Music